This morning's reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 32, and it's verses 22 to 32. It's titled, Jacob Wrestles with God. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. The man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him, and he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is the word of the Lord. No worries. It's that passage. I love this passage. Hi, everyone. I'm Pastor Brendan. I'm delighted to be bringing the message to you today. Um, As Pastor Darrell was dividing these up, we were getting to Genesis 31 and 32, and he said, well, you can do just 31 if you want to. And I said, oh, no, no, I want them both. I want all of these. This chapter 31 is about uh, Jacob fleeing from Laban's household, and they have this strange scene where his wife Rachel steals her father's household gods, and what's that about? And chapter 32 is Jacob, among other things, encountering this man-angel that he is wrestling, and what's that about? And I didn't want to leave either of those behind. I didn't want to miss the chance to preach on them, so we're going to talk about both of them, and I'm delighted to be doing so. So let's pray, and then let's get into God's Word. Father God, We thank you so much for your word. We pray you open it to our hearts today, and we pray that you open our hearts to what you have to say to us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Picture there is a colorized version of a famous woodcut by a guy called Gustavo something, 1855. Um, Very nice picture. Unlikely that the man who wrestled with Jacob had giant wings. I feel like that may have been mentioned, but... Something like that happens in the story. There's a saying that's sometimes attributed to Winston Churchill. It's, if you're going through hell, keep going. Hell is no place to stop. Jacob's gotten away with a lot in his story, as we've been reading, as we've been going through in our Genesis series. He's been blessed by God. He's gained a lot of wealth. He's gained a lot of family. Uh, And in these chapters, he goes through hell. And God does the work that only God can do to keep him going. We return to the adventures of Jacob as he toils in uh, chapter 31 in the service of his uncle Laban. Laban is a man as deceitful and manipulative as Jacob is himself. Um, 
And so they have some interesting interactions there. Jacob falls in love with one of uh, Laban's daughters, Rachel. And then he gets tricked into marrying both Rachel and, Le- and Leah, uh, both of the, the daughters of Laban. Laban, in, in chapter 30, we're told that he found out through divination that God was blessing him as long as Jacob was nearby working for him. And so he does everything he can to keep Jacob around, to get as much of the sort of overflow of that blessing as possible, including marrying both of his daughters to Jacob for seven years each, and then negotiating further for more and more time until he spent 20 years there. Now, Jacob, as, you've, as you may recall, he fled his homeland. He fled Canaan um, for fear that his brother Esau would kill him after he sort of tricked his brother out of his birthright and out of his blessing. And in these chapters, God calls him back to his homeland. This is it's time to go back, it's time to confront Esau, it's time to return to where you came from. But first he has to confront his present, and that's what we have in chapter 31, the present situation where he is there having gained so much from Laban that Laban and his sons are beginning to get jealous of how much blessing Jacob has. They're beginning to get unsettled and possibly even violent. And there's too much in these chapters for us to go completely line by line, but we'll walk through beat by beat all the same. At the start of Genesis 31, Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob uh, notices that Laban and his sons are beginning to regard him with resentment. God sends him a dream, recalling him back to Canaan, the land that uh, God intends for his nation, back to where Esau, the brother who wanted to kill him, is waiting. And so Jacob sends messengers to, uh, to Rachel and Leah, to his wives. He says to come and meet him out by the flocks where he's guarding the sheep. It's like a little clandestine uh, bridge meeting off to the side. He tells him that God's given him this message, um, that he's seen everything that Laban has been doing, that God has been seeing everything Laban's been doing to try and defraud Jacob of what he's earned, and he's blessed Jacob in spite of this. Because Jacob made this vow to God, if you recall back, where he saw a vision of Jacob's ladder or heaven's gate. He calls it a place he marked with a stone and called Bethel the house of God. Now, if you jump back a few chapters to chapter 28, verse 10, you find God's promise that he made to Jacob. He says, I will multiply your descendants. I will bring you back to this land. And now Jacob has 11 sons. His descendants have been multiplied, and it's time to go home. So they pack up the kids, he packs up his wives, his camels, all the livestock uh, that Jacob had accumulated that he now owns, all the wealth that he'd built up, mostly from Laban. And they set off, or rather, they prepare to set off. They actually wait until Laban is otherwise occupied, which is interesting. That's in verses 19 through 21. While Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he has, or had crossed the Euphrates River and headed for the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob sneaks away while Laban isn't looking. This is the kind of forthright confrontation of problems we've come to expect of Jacob. Um, but the standout question in this passage is, what's the deal with those household gods? What are household gods? Why would Rachel steal them? Should we be concerned? This doesn't seem to match up with the general tenor of don't do anything with idols that we get in the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
There's an easy answer, and that's we don't exactly know what these are. Um, but when I get feedback about my preaching about the Old Testament particularly, folks tell me they, they appreciate getting some historical background to fill in the world that these characters occupy, so buckle up, we're going off-road for a few minutes. Um, there's a couple of different ideas that historians have, historians and anthropologists and archaeologists and all these smart people with PhDs who dig around in dusty sites in the Middle East. Um, they have different ideas about what these teraphim are. Teraphim is the Hebrew word that means household gods. It's translated here. We don't actually know what the meaning is. By the time that we have um, widespread use of that word in the Hebrew like, literature and in, in their writings, the, the name has come to mean disgusting things. Right? So it's kind of changed meaning to we hate those things, whatever they were. Um, and they're not exactly sure what they used to be. And there seems to have been more than one kind of teraphim. It comes up 15 times in the Old Testament. It's still pretty mysterious. I'm going to tell you what I think is far and away the most likely answer. If you're interested to know the other options, come and chat with me after. I would love to talk to you. Now, first we have to remember where Abram's, Abraham's family comes from when he was still Abram. Uh, they come from a place called Ur. Ur is part of what will one day be the, the greater Babylonian empire. For now, it's sort of further east than Babylon is. Ur is the red star you can see on the map there. Genesis 11 tells us that Abraham's father, Terah, was moving his family from Ur. They were going to Canaan. They kind of went the long way, going up the river. So the big red star on the map there is Ur. They go, travel up the Euphrates. They go to the region of Haran. It's also kind of Padamaran, same area. Um, that's the blue star on your map there. And that's where Jacob is in the story right now. Now, Abraham's father, Terah, was supposed to take his family to Canaan, which is the yellow star all the way down on the bottom of the map there. Why was he going there? Well, it seems likely that God called Terah. Terah had some kind of attachment to the real, true living God, even if he was mired in an, an idolatrous culture. We learn that because in this chapter, um, uh, Laban calls the Lord the God of Abraham's father, which is an interesting phrase. And so they're meant to be going to Canaan, but for some reason, Terah sort of runs out of steam, doesn't quite get there. They settle down in Haran, and that's where they set up. And then God calls Abraham out of his family to come down into the land of Canaan that he has promised. And then occasionally through this story, we get the situation where uh, they, send, they you know, send their sons back to that land where the, fam where the tribe had settled to look for wives. Now, like everywhere else in the ancient world, cities and settlements had their own patron gods and goddesses. They had false idols. This is a plague upon the world. And this is when we get the start of God's plan, really pulling the world out of this idolatrous misconception of who God is. God calls Abraham out of the land of false idols into Canaan, which will one day belong entirely to his descendants who worship only the Lord. And the story of the patriarchs is very much about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob breaking away from the, their uh, their strange and warped idea of what gods are and, and what God himself could actually accomplish and coming to know who the true God of the universe is and what his plan is for the world. But the family Abraham comes from is still very much stuck in the worship of false gods, just the extended family certainly is. And so the city of Ur, where they came from, was a city devoted to a moon god named Sin. Now that's a funny coincidence, but the English word Sin doesn't come from this uh, ancient pagan god, but funny how that worked out. You'll see Sin there is in the middle picture. That's from a steel, from like a, like a um, clay tablet impression. Um, he's a guy there. He's sitting there. He's, he's a god of the moon. You can see he's got like a crescent moon over his hand. Um, that is 
the primary god of Abraham's family that he was called out of. Abraham's dad was named Terah, which probably means something like the divine moon. Uh, Laban's name means white one, and that's definitely true, and that's almost certainly a reference to the full moon. And Sarah, her name was once Sarai, and Sarai is a variation of Saratu, and Saratu is the name of the god Sin's wife. Um, so all these names throughout that family are named after this, this pagan cult moon-worshipping religion. And that's the big, the big reason they were called out of that place, because God is building a new nation to worship him, and so he calls them out of the land of idols. And one of the things that these moon and sun cults do, the ones in the Sumerian, in the region that Ur is in, is they make these little humanish statues like those pictured on the left there. And particularly, the ones in Ur, they make them out of gold, or uh, if they're to do with the sun, or out of silver if they're to do with the moon. And they believe these little idols, they'd carve them, that they believe they soaked up like the secrets and the wisdom of the universe, and then you could use them to tell the future or learn secrets, all this kind of culty stuff. We know Laban is into divination and mystical things because in chapter 30 he says, by divination I learned that your God is blessing us. He did some ritual fortune telling and the result came back that the God of Isaac is blessing him and, uh, and you're getting the overflow. And so this is probably why Laban did everything he could to keep his son-in-law working with him for 20 years. So back to the passage, Rachel steals her father's teraphim. Why does she do this? Well, there's a couple of reasons that come to mind. If they're gold or silver statues, they're probably very valuable. Even if they're not, Rachel's been raised in this kind of cultic um, family mindset. They're her gods too, as far as she considers them at this point. Highly possible. She might be trying to prevent her father from using them to divine where they're going. Whatever combination of these happens to be true, Rachel sees these idols as valuable and powerful and desirable and worth stealing, and so she steals them. And does that without telling her husband. So Jacob does not know that she has stolen these things. Then we get to Genesis 31, 22 to 34. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, taking his relatives with him, taking his, particularly his armed male relatives. They pursued Jacob. Uh, but she was Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you might remember uh, last week that Laban, uh, he put his flock three days away from Jacob's flock because he was trying to keep all the good sheep over there. He, didn't, he was trying to defraud Jacob of, uh, of the, the wages he was earning, so he put his flock three days away and thought that was pretty smart. Probably feels pretty dumb now. Takes him three days to get the news that Jacob has taken off. And so he takes off in hot pursuit, catches up seven days later, well down the coast, right near this little river that crosses over into, the, into Canaan, into what would be called the Promised Land. Laban is a clever schemer, and he is not above violence, so he spends these seven days presumably planning how he's going to manipulate Jacob or threaten him back to Padam Aran. And then the God of Abraham and Isaac appears to Laban in a dream and says, say nothing to him, either good or bad. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean remain silent like it seems to us. It's kind of a Hebrew or a, a Aramaic idiom. The idea is don't try and say nice things to tempt him back and entice him. Don't bribe him. And don't try and say scary things, don't try and threaten him. Don't say good things or bad things to try and dissuade him from the fact that I, the Lord, his God, have called him back to the land he has promised. God did not call his people out of earth so that they could go on eating moon pies up in whoop whoop. It's time to get on with the plan. 
And God implies in this that if you get between my people and my land, you're going to get stepped on. And so Laban gets put in his place. He catches up to Jacob and gives this amusing, pathetic rant in verses 25 to 30, where he really changes his tone. God's taken away all of his threats and all of his bribes. He does the only thing he can do left, which is tries guilt. He says, Jacob, you're so mean. You snuck out like that. You carried off my daughters like captives. I didn't get to kiss my grandkids goodbye. I was going to throw you a party. And yes, this is an army of men, and we were going to beat you up. <laughs> but now the God of your father is sending me threats in my dreams. Oh, I'm so hard done by. He says, fine, go back to your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? And that's the confusing part for Jacob. Like everything else, he's like, yeah, yeah, I know this, but he didn't take those gods. Jacob doesn't know that Rachel stole these teraphim, these little gods, and so he makes a pronouncement that remains in Scripture as a kind of warning against rash proclamations and vows. Verses 31 to 32. Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force, but if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live in the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. The rabbis call this Rachel's curse. Now, Laban searches through the tents for his stolen goods. This is kind of a funny bit of the story, actually. Um, Laban searches through the tents for his stolen goods. Um, it says he searches through Jacob's tent, can't find them. Searches through Leah's tent, can't find them. Rachel actually has these little little gods, these little icons, um, hidden in a camel saddle that she's kind of using as a seat in her tent. Laban doesn't find them. He doesn't find them because he comes storming into the tent, opening every bag and box he can find, and Rachel, who is a sneaky daughter of a sneaky father, says to him, sorry, I can't stand up, Dad. Don't be mad. I actually have cramps. Woman problems. And like most men, he's instantly propelled away. <laughs> Say no more. That's fine. I'll get you a wheat pack. You just stay there. Goodbye. And then doesn't demand that she get up, he just to say no more, and, <laughs> and lets her go. Um, so she gets away with it for the moment. But words have power, and particularly the words of a righteous man like Jacob. Several, seven, several years later, Rachel is in fact going to die, giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. Make of that connection what you will. That's what they call Rachel's curse. But for now, Laban is humiliated, he's frustrated, he's without his gods, he's without his wealth and without his family. Uh, Jacob is pretty fed up too. These guys don't like each other anymore. Laban has armed men, but God has warned him against coercion and against force, so he's holding back. But any love that existed between Laban and Jacob is now gone. Now they're just a threat to each other. And Laban talks Jacob into making a covenant with him. They set up a pillar, and the idea is that God is going to be their witness Jacob is not going to go north past this pillar and therefore threaten Laban. Laban is not going to go south past this pillar and therefore threaten Jacob. And they invoke God to sanctify this covenant so that they can go their separate ways without fearing revenge from the other one. And then Laban kisses his grandchildren goodbye. He blesses his daughters. He goes home. That's the end of chapter 31. So then chapter 32 begins with Jacob trapped. Because if he goes north, he is crossing this line. He has sworn to God that he will not cross. And then it will be, he will be violating his covenant with God. In Laban's eyes, he has a right to consider him hostile and attack him. And he'll probably be killed. The only way to go is to continue south. Or rather, to continue kind of southwest, but you know, southish. Um, and the last time he was there, his own brother Esau had sworn to kill him. 
He has a murderous father-in-law behind him. He has a murderous brother in front of him. And as a side note, almost as a side note, at the start of this, at chapter, chapter 32, he passes what is called a camp of God's angels. What are they doing? The text doesn't say. Jacob names the place Manahayim, which means two camps, because he camped there and God camped there. They had these two uh, human and divine camps side by side. He seems to take this as a positive sign. Okay, God's with me. He protected me from Laban. Maybe things aren't as bad as I thought. He sends some messengers ahead to contact his brother with a very gentle, submissive message. He explains he's been with their uncle Laban for the last 20 years, and now he's a very rich man. You would like to come home, please? Um, And he calls Esau Lord, and he calls himself your servant. He's doing everything he can to kind of humble himself. If you remember, this is, remember the prophecy over these two when they were still in Rebekah's womb, that these are two nations within Rebekah, and the older will serve the younger. Jacob's name literally means he grabs the heel. That means he is the guy who comes from behind, trips you up, and overtakes you. His name means ankle tap. Um, And ankle tap is the brother Uh, who schemed his older brother out of his birthright and his blessing. And this guy is coming home, oh, shucks, I'm just here to serve you, I swear. Now, would you buy that from your brother? Mm, Probably not. The messengers come back in verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. (laughs) Oh, dear, that sounds pretty bad. Now Jacob, the man who has been able to outrun every threat and skate by every danger in his life by the grace of God, is standing here in Gilead. He's not quite in the promised land yet. Just over this little stream called the Jabbok is Canaan, the land of his father, where he's supposed to be going, where his brother is going to meet him with what sounds like an army. And behind him is the land of his uncle Laban, who is hoping very much that Jacob comes back, violates his covenant with God, and therefore opens himself to being killed so that Laban can get all of his stuff back. And with Jacob, where he stands are a huge number of slow, vulnerable livestock and servants and slow, vulnerable family, um, and the command of God ringing in his head to go back to the land of your fathers, I will be with you. The text says that he is in great distress and fear that may somewhat understate it. Uh, Jacob is... A runner. He's not a warrior like his grandfather Abraham. He hasn't fought in these wars. He's not a hunter like his brother Esau. His skill is craft and escape, and now there is nowhere to run. And so he prays desperately. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. That's in Genesis 32, verses 9 to 12. He prays his heart out. He spends the night there. He doesn't say he sleeps. He definitely spends the night there. I wouldn't be surprised if he stayed up all night. Then he tries to do everything he can to mitigate the problem he's in because this is Jacob and he is a schemer. He tries to soften Esau up. He lines up rows of his his servants leading his livestock, some of his camels, some of his cows and donkeys, and he sends them over the stream ahead of him in waves with instructions to the servants. They're supposed to encounter Esau 
And tell Esau, oh, these are gifts from your servant Jacob. And he's coming right behind this next wave of gifts. Um, and wave after wave of gifts to try. And he says, I'm going to try and pacify him with gifts. Then after he's sent all the gifts that he's going to send, Jacob waits until nightfall. And then he gathers the rest of his, uh, what he has there, the rest of his possessions. He gathers his wives, his children. Um, he sends them across the stream. And then one of the most mysterious passages in all of scripture occurs. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. First mystery, why was he left alone? If he's crossing the stream with everything he owns, why would you send everything else but yourself to the other side and just wait on the other side? That doesn't make sense. You'd cross with the last bunch of stuff. You know, you'd go with your family or, or the thing you're protecting the most, or you would cross with the things, but he's left on the other side alone. Scripture's already told us why he's terrified. He's working up the courage. He's prayed to God. He knows God is faithful to his promises, but God's promise is not to protect him from his brother. It's to give him many sons and return him to the land of his fathers. That's the land of his fathers, promise fulfilled. He has no assurance that he is not going to die here. And like most people, most of the time, he is not ready to die. So he procrastinates. We're not told uh, why he waited until night for this crossing. It seems likely that he wanted the cover of darkness in case they were going to flee. The passage says he separates his, uh, his family and his goods into two camps, Rachel in one and Leah in the other and the respective sons and all their wealth with the hope that if, if Esau attacks one, maybe the other can escape. He's doing everything he can to mitigate this damage. But now the time has come to cross. And he's frozen on the opposite shore of this tiny stream, trying to find the courage in his heart to do this for the first time in his life. Now you can divide men in the world into two groups. You can do that along a bunch of lines, but for the purpose of his example, those who have been tested and those who haven't been tested. I don't know exactly what the equivalent is for women. I, suggest it's, I suspect it's not exactly the same. But young men grow up with stories of how our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers have faced great trials and overcome. Sometimes hardship and difficulty, but especially danger and combat. And we grow up thinking about cops and firemen and soldiers, people who risk their lives because it's the right thing to do. And men who have been tested, who have done something like that, they know how they act when courage is required of them. And then there are untested men. And hiding in the back of an untested man's mind at all times is the quiet knowledge that we don't know when the chips are down if we would turn out to be cowards or heroes. We don't know if we have what it takes to overcome when we are being counted on. And Jacob is having a moment of doubt because he has never in his life had to fight for anything. And this paralyzes him. And then a man comes out of nowhere. They fight until the sun rises and the cover of night is gone. The man notices Jacob holding his ground. And so he performs some kind of move to dislocate or wrench Jacob's hip to hobble him. And when the sun is rising, the man says, let me go. The sun is rising. Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man gives him the name Israel, which means struggles with God because he has struggled with God and man has overcome. Jacob then asks for his name. 
The other fighter says, why do you ask my name? And then blesses him and apparently vanishes or leaves. Now, the most common way to understand this scene is that this man was an angel sent by God as his agent, as his face, to wrestle with Jacob. And I think that's the best way to understand it. Jacob doesn't seem to know that this man has any divine meaning behind him until after the fight's over and the angel starts saying divine sort of things. And he has to go, wait, who are you? So it's unlikely that the angel had the wings like in the picture and the, the verses very clearly call him a man in this vague sense. His purpose seems to have been to overpower Jacob. He's trying to overpower him. His time limit seems to have been the rising of the sun. Now across the Jabbok, across that little stream, next week we'll see that Esau is just about to arrive as the sun is rising. And so any chance that Jacob has to run has been taken away from him by this wrestling. Jacob prayed to God, and God sent what he most needed in that moment, a test, a terrifying test. This man comes out of the darkness, and they start to fight. He has no one to help him. Is this an assassin sent by his brother or by his uncle? Is it some bandit in the wilderness looking to attack him and carry off his wives or his children? Jacob doesn't know. But they wrestle, and Jacob fights like a tiger. It is impossible for him to overcome his divine opponent, but Jacob is too wild or too slippery or too stubborn to be pinned. And so this angel in disguise performs some kind of martial or miraculous maneuver that cripples Jacob's leg, probably so that whatever happens, Jacob can't run. And he knows now that he can't run. The angel says, let me go. It's daybreak. It's time to go. Jacob says, not unless you bless me. Now, what does bless me mean in this context? It means, give me your blessing, that when I let go, you're not going to attack me again. It means, uh, I'm only going to let go of you if you submit to me. It means, I am Jacob, the son of Isaac, servant of God, and whoever you are, I am fulfilling his command, and I'm not going to let someone get a cheap shot on me that will stop me from executing his will. In the space of time between the night before and the daylight where they have wrestled until... Jacob has discovered that he is not just this tricky, cowardly boy who fled across this stream running from home 20 years ago. He is a man that God has built through obedience and hard work and difficult times and threats and faith. He has a spine. The angel gives him this new name that God will confirm to him three chapters later. And when the angel blesses him and leaves him there, blinking in the daylight alone with his victory, he names the place Peniel, because he saw God face to face and survived. Now, Peniel means face God. Peniel is face, El is God. It means the face of God. It means I have faced God. It means I, who have run all my life, declare here and now that I am turning my face to God, and in that facing, I shall remain. And then Jacob limps across the stream, plain and visible in the light of day with no darkness to cover or retreat, to meet the brother who hours earlier had terrified him into paralysis. This is a mysterious passage. There's no doubt about that. There are more questions to ask, and I would love to talk to you about it after the service. If you have some, I can't promise to have the answer to every question and every mystery in this passage. But I can tell you what God reminded to me in this passage as I was studying it. And that's that God did not make us for easy victories. God made human beings knowing the kind of world that they would inhabit, the kind of world that we tend to make for each other. And he made us the kind of people that if we are faithful to him, and if we rely on him, 
and we do his will and pursue his good ends in our lives, that not only will we overcome difficulties, but those difficulties will make us stronger. Because, and because that is true, and because God requires his people to be strong, he will not only hold our hand through the difficulties this world serves up, he will at times lead us into challenges that are confusing and painful and that we cannot imagine God's purpose for using. And he will do this because he wants us to discover in ourselves the courage and in him the faithfulness to overcome. To overcome even wounded and exhausted and uncertain and to turn our face to him and to limp onwards towards the destiny he has for us knowing that even the scars we earn wrestling with a God-given challenge make us more whole than we could hope to be faithless and unbruised. And some people in this room are going through unspeakable challenges right now. Some have just emerged from their darkest hour into a moment of relief, and nearly everyone in this room has some loss or tragedy coming in their future. That much is near to certain. And wherever you are in your journey, remember that God has called you to turn your face to him to strive and to struggle and overcome whatever stands between who you were, the wretch for whom Jesus died, and the man or woman of God that the Holy Spirit is driving you to become. God knows how to make heroes worthy of heaven out of cowards and fools. So turn your face to him. Overcome the challenges before you and marvel at the creature that God can make out of you. Let's pray together. Father God, you are the master of our destiny and the Lord of us here and now. You sent your son to earth to die so that we could turn our faces to you with no fear of sin and brokenness. Now complete the work that you have begun in us, Lord. Give us the strength to overcome in the trials that you have placed before us and the wisdom to see the value that has come out of those trials that we have passed. We ask this blessing in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.